So this morning we continue looking at 1 John. If you recall, uh, the church to which John is writing has endured a, a substantial upheaval as a number of people have left the church, congregants and teachers who are seemingly an integral part of that body. But they have left and they are teaching things that are antithetical to the gospel. And so John is writing his letter here to reassure the church of what they have heard and of what they believe, to remind them of the true good news of Christ. And if you recall, what we've looked at is that there's two primary themes, two primary thrusts to this letter. The first is that John wants the believers to know what they believe and to know that they know what they believe, that they can be confident, that they can be assured in their faith. The second thing, and we looked at this in more in depth last time, is that the believers may know that their joy is complete. And it's on that note that we left off last time. We, John, are writing these things so that you and our joy may be complete. So then picking up in verse 5, our passage from today, this is the message that we have heard from him, that is Jesus, and that we proclaim to you. Remember, if you will, that John began his letter with his bona fides for being the presenter of the gospel. We have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, and we have touched with our hands. John saying, I walked with Jesus. I saw him. I was an eyewitness to him. I saw him so up close and personal, that that's why you can trust that what I am saying, the gospel that I am presenting to you is the true gospel. And so continuing in that vein, John says here in verse 5, this is the gospel, this is the good news that we have heard and that we are now preaching to you. Those guys who left that are telling you something different, they didn't walk with Jesus, they didn't know Jesus, they didn't touch Jesus. So this is the good news that we proclaim to you. And it's the good news about him that we have already shared with you and that we continue to share with you. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you. Church, how would you complete that? Where would you start with good news? What's the good news that you think your neighbor needs to hear, your spouse needs to hear, your child needs to hear, that, your, uh, that the world needs to hear? What is the good news? What is it that's worth hearing? What will bring complete joy like John is promising? Girl, you're gorgeous. Brother, you're good one, one good-looking dude. You're smart. You're capable. You're accomplished. You, don't, you just need to work harder. You just need to look within yourself. You just need to be true to yourself. You need to be more selfless. You need to be more selfish. Treat yourself. You just need to relax. You need to work harder. You're desperately wicked. You just do so many good things. You just need to cut yourself a good uh, break. You just need to find your niche. You just need to find something that will make you happy. You need to get married. You need to get divorced. You need to make money. You need to stop worrying so much about money. You just need to stop being anxious about money. You just need to stop being anxious about anxiety. You just need, what is it, church? What is that good news? What would you share with your neighbor? What would you share with yourself? What is it that you tell yourself when the world isn't going right? What is that good news? Do you see what all of this advice has in common? It begins with you. It begins with me. If you want to be filled with joy, then you should do this, or you need this. But where does John begin? 
This is the message that we proclaim to you, that God is light. God is light. The first thing that we need to see in this passage is that if we are going to recognize how we um, find that joy complete, is that we need to start with God. But how often do we actually start there? Even if we're going to do our best to apply sound doctrine to our lives, even if we begin with ourselves, we inevitably end up asking, what can God do for me? The British pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones frames it like this. So I must always be careful not to start with myself or our whole approach to the gospel and to Christianity naturally tends to be from that self-centered and selfish standpoint. We argue like this. Here I am in this world with its troubles and I am ill at ease. I am looking for something that I have not got. I am aware of my needs and desires. I am aware of a lack of happiness and the tendency for most of us is to approach the whole subject of religion, to approach God and Christian truth and everything else in terms of my desires and my demands. What has he to say to me to give to me? What can I get out of this Christian faith and religion? Is there something in this that is going to ease my problems and help me in this dark and difficult world? So rather than starting with ourselves, rather than looking inward, we look outward. We begin with God. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. This simple encapsulation of the gospel is going to be the premise on which John will develop his argument in these following verses. But what does it mean for John to say that God is light? I think on one hand, light might seem a little bit abstract and ambiguous. Uh, To say God is love or that God is uh, true or truth um, or God is just, those make a little bit more sense, I think. But to say that God is light seems a little abstract, a little bit hard to comprehend. On the other hand, I think it can elude our understanding because there's a sense in which the meaning is too apparent, too close to see. Light and darkness surround us, not just literally, but metaphorically, with death and divorce and plagues and famine and war. Like a fish in water, we swim in darkness, To step back and ask us to assess what is light and dark is as difficult as the fish to say what water is like. And yet tropes of light and darkness fill the literature that we read and the media that we consume. Evil incarnate in Steinbeck's East of Eden closets herself in her room in a darkened tent hiding from any light at all. Gandalf the Grey in Lord of the Rings is reborn. Gandalf the White and appears in blinding light and then again arrives with the dawn, with the rising sun, symbolizing salvation, riding with the Rohirrim to save Helm's Deep. Or a little light bulb sparks over someone's head to symbolize illumination, revelation. Darkness images evil, treachery, mourning, loss, murder. Light is used to frame the good, the pure, the righteous, the holy. In the Old Testament, the image of light is used in a variety of ways, in a variety of understandings. God appears as light in a burning bush before Moses and in a pillar of fire to guide the Israelites out of Egypt. Light is God's revelation. As the psalmist writes, your word is a lamp to my feet and the light to my path. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. 
Oh, that I were as in the mouths of months of old, as in the days of when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head and his light walked through darkness. Isaiah prophesies, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. One commentator helpfully coalesces these images for us. God is light means that he is absolute in his glory, the physical connotation of light, in his truth, the intellectual, and in his holiness, the moral. So moreover, John emphasizes this absolute purity, not simply as God is light, but also in him there is no darkness at all. Again, like a fish out of water, it seems, to heart, it seems hard to conceptualize this pure, undiminished light when our world, the water in which we swim, is so tainted with darkness. But I think it makes sense of the story of Moses in the cleft of the rock, covered by the hand of God as God passes by, and Moses is allowed to glimpse the merest glimpse of God, lest Moses die. And Moses is still, his face is so bright that he has to put a veil over it because the Israelites cannot look at him. Again, it makes sense of Isaiah standing before the throne of God as the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah cries out, he cannot help himself. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. John says, God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. John, who was writing this letter, was witness, witness along with Peter and James to the great transfiguration of Jesus. As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. My friends, I think it is vital that we sit here under this great doctrine and think of what it means that God is light. What are those implications on your life and on mine? Do we allow the dazzling light of the universe to form and shape us? Do we live in the light of his holiness, confounded and dazed by the brilliance of his light? Do we lean into the light, exposing all of our deepest and darkest secrets and hidden deformities to him in whom there is no darkness at all? God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Have you ever told someone God is light? I was thinking about this the other day. You know, in apologetics, in attempting to give a reason, give an answer um, for, for the hope that we have, to try to um, work through someone's um, problems that they maybe have with Christianity, I think that we often frame our answer as a tension between truth and love. On the one hand, we want to speak the truth into a situation. We want to say, this is the truth, for God is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that's good. But on the other hand, we want to share the truth in love. We want to love that person where they are at. And so maybe sometimes we don't give them the full truth, or we nuance the truth. And I think that's fair. I think that's good. I think that sometimes we err too far on one side or the other. But I think 
that God is light is a really helpful apologetic to consider in this day and age. Light is something that almost is unequivocally good, something that we can all agree on. It's a basis for our understanding. And as we'll see, John says that there's direct implications of God is light being that God is also truth. But at the very least, it's a great starting place. So I wonder, have you ever told someone, God is light? Have you ever told yourself, God is light? I think it's important to think about how we can contextualize the good news, the gospel to the person and the culture into which we're speaking. You know, Paul looks around the Areopagus and looks at the pantheon of gods, and rather than decrying all the false gods, he points to the altar of the unknown God and says, let me tell you about the one who is unknown. In our time, in our age, it might be important, rather than using truth as a weapon to destroy and savage, that we consider how we might share the God who is light with those around us. As Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. God, who is light, is not only perceptible like the risen sun, we look directly towards him, but also by looking towards him, he provides illumination and clarity by which we can perceive and comprehend everything else. That is why John begins with God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. How much more effective might our witness be if we considered how to represent this characteristic of God to those around us? John writes, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And then what follows in verses 6 through 10 are five conditional statements. If this, then this. And I think as we examine them, we'll see that the best way to understand the flow of the arguments is that 6 and 7 are the direct application of this theological truth. The application of God is light. And we'll glance through these verses Um, and so that I can show you that arrangement, and then we'll circle back to examine the verses in more detail. So read with me in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in darkness, but if we walk in light. So God is light, Therefore, application, walk in the light. Then if you look at verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us all from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What I understand John to be writing here is a clarification of what it means for us to walk in the light. Walking in the light does not mean that we are, sin, not, that we are sinless or that sin no longer has any effect on us, but rather, walking in the light does mean that we are confessing our sins. Now, we'll look more closely at all of this, but here, I, I kind of want to look at the overall structure. So verse 5 is the theological premise, God is light. And then verses 6 and 7 are the application, therefore walk in light. And the verses 8 through 10 are that clarification. We are not sinless, but we are confessing. So let's look more closely at these conditional statements. If we say we have fellowship with him, that is God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What does it mean that we walk in darkness? 
I think we can perhaps infer that if God is light, if God is holy, God is pure, God is removed from all the blemishes of sin and the devil, then walking in darkness is the antithesis of this. It is living an impure, an unholy life, one filled with sin. Remember, if you will, that John is writing to a church that has been infiltrated by a kind of pseudo-Gnostic ideation. Uh, One component of this Gnosticism, of this set of beliefs, is the belief that the body doesn't matter, the soul alone is what matters, and therefore that what you do with the body is of no consequence. So we could see a situation where those who have left the church are espousing a, quote, gospel of indulging pleasures and desires. I think that's part of walking in darkness. We'll also see that John will continue to clarify what it means, loving the world, being part of the world. But we'll get to those in later passages. But at this point in this verse, I think that we can begin with our rudimentary understanding of walking in darkness and see that John is more concerned, rather than clarifying precisely what it means, he wants to communicate what are the consequences of walking in darkness. So if we say that we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, then we lie and do not practice the truth. John is kind of side-eye looking at those false teachers. If you're walking in darkness while claiming to know and be in relationship with God, then you betray yourself as a liar. So the first consequence of walking in darkness is that we cannot have fellowship with God. Conversely, we are called to live an upright and holy life. As Paul argues in Romans 6, in view of God's incredible mercy and grace for us, what shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, uh, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. But not only can we not have fellowship with God, we make ourselves to be a liar if we claim fellowship with God while living in the bondage of sin, that we do not practice truth. Now, it might seem a bit redundant, but it's important to see here that John's understanding of truth. In our heavily Greek-influenced Western world, we see truth as a set of propositions, as statements out there, which we can mentally assent to or not. Truth is a set of abstract notions. There's no difference uh, between the propositions that, oh, uh, sorry. (laughs) Truth is a set of abstract notions that we can sit in our armchairs and think through and consider and say, yeah, or no. But John has a whole other conception of truth. There's no difference between the propositions that we believe and the propositions that we live out. If the lives that we uh, live do not reflect the truths that we say, then we betray that we do not actually believe those truths. I was once told that the life that we live will be one of the primary ways in which we will be judged on the veracity of the truth that we preach and teach. It was pointed out that you know, many Christian authors and preachers and teachers who write many great things, but then when a great scandal comes along, suddenly their books are on the discount shelves at the Christian bookstores. The irony of this is I was told this by the late apologist Ravi Zacharias, who himself would betray the words he spoke with a duplicitous life that he led. Friends, the life we live, the truth that we walk in, demonstrates the veracity of the truth to which we actually assent. Our lives are more telling of the truths we believe than the words that we speak. So brothers and sisters, consider well the life that you live. Take the warning of John and practice the life 
Practice the truth in your life. Picking up in verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. This is the converse, the antithesis. If we walk in darkness, we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, then here are the results. First, we have fellowship with one another. John is reiterating a point he made in verse 3. If you can remember that far back, we looked at how our fellowship as Christians is predicated on our theology, on our ontology. We have common fellowship because we have common belief in God, common belief in Christ our Savior, common belief in the depravity of sin, common belief in our reconciliation with God. But we also have common fellowship with one another because we have been changed in our very being. Our ontology has been changed. Where we were once aliens and strangers to God, we have been made new. We've been reconciled to God. We have been made sons and daughters of God. This is the basis of our fellowship. And so again, we walk in light. We walk in the holiness of God, in the purity of Christ, in order that we might have fellowship with one another. But not only that, for if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What a great and precious promise. As John will clarify, this doesn't mean that we no longer sin, nor that we are no longer affected by the curse of sin. It does, however, mean that we are walking, uh, that if we are walking in the light, that we are confessing our sins, that we are continually choosing to step into the light. And now I think it's making a little bit more sense why John began with God is. If we began with man is or I am, and we might think about what we can do to solve our problem. How do I go about fixing this state? What modifications, what remedies, what gurus, what teachers can I listen to to make my life better? But we, listen, but we begin with God. God is light. And if God is light, pure, unfiltered, unblemished, light with no darkness, then what kind of state am I in? I know how wretched I am how short my temper is, how impatient I am, how easily I seek to fulfill my desires, my wants, how much darkness and sin there is in my life in contrast to the pure holiness of God. As the British author Malcolm Muggeridge once said, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. As we stand in awe of the God who is light, we can no longer hide that we are filled with sin. We can no longer resist the truth that I am in dire need of a savior and I cannot save myself. But just as that light exposes sin, exposes darkness, it also purifies and cleanses. It casts out darkness. The holy light purifies us from unrighteousness. We are not simply made aware of the problem when we perceive God who is light, but we are also given the solution to the problem. If we walk in light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the application of the theology. And then John turns in the last three verses to a clarification of this application. Continuing in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John is clarifying that 
the purification from sin is not a one-time affair. We have been cleansed of sin and now we are good. We have been made right. No. To walk in the light is not to be free of sin. The claim that we can be perfect, the claim that we can cast off all sinfulness this side of heaven is clearly false. John draws out two results of making such a claim. First, the truth is not in us. We deceive ourselves. We make light of our sinfulness. We pretend and blind ourselves that the reality of sin is ever-present in our lives. But worse than that, worse than simply deceiving ourselves, pretending that we are sinless, we call God a liar if we lay claim to sinfulness, sinlessness. For the grace of Christ's blood poured out upon us not only brings us back to square one, not only are we brought from alienation into adoption, but his grace is continually and continuing to be applied in our life in order that we might walk more and more in the light as we grow more and more in Christ's likeness. So to say that we don't need the application of this grace on our lives at any point would be the height of hubris and the peak of introspective blindness. John says that we are calling God a liar if we claim to be sinless. But on the converse, we have this incredible verse, this indelible promise in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is the pattern of our service each and every week. This is the liturgy of our service in order that we might become, in order that it might become the liturgy and pattern of our lives. When we sin, we confess. And when we confess, he forgives. This is walking in the light. Not that we don't sin, but that when we do sin, we turn to God and confess our sin in order that he might forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he, that is Christ, is faithful. Christ is faithful. He does what he says he will. He has established this covenant with us. He is in covenant relationship with us as sons and daughters of God. We can have no uncertainty, no trepidation, no confusion about the result of our confession. If we confess, Christ is faithful. But not only is he faithful, he is just. How is it just that he forgives our sins? It seems like it would be better to say he is merciful or he is gracious or even capricious, but rather John writes that he is just to forgive us our sins. If you imagine that someone has done something really wrong against you and that person is standing before the judge and the judge says, that's okay, I forgive you, you can go. You'd say that's not just, that's unjust. But that's the, precisely the heart of Christ's death on the cross. Christ died the death that we should have died. Christ paid the penalty that we owed in order that he might stand before God with his righteousness on our behalf and say, this man is forgiven. This woman is forgiven for what I have, by what I have done. And so when David, as we said, writes in Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, away through groaning all day long, unconfessed sin wreaks havoc. It destroys us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So friends, church, look to him. Look to Christ. Confess your sins to the God who hears you. John tells us that God is light and in him is no darkness. Therefore, the application is walk in that light, which necessarily includes confession and repentance. Day after day after day, week after week, we come back here to confess and be forgiven. Day after day, with our spouses, with our children, with our co-workers, we confess, we repent, and God forgives I leave you with the words of Lloyd-Jones once again, reflecting on this passage. Thank God for the thoroughness of the gospel. Thank God for the heavenly way which starts by holding us face to face with a holy, absolute God and then driving us, leading us to the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This then is the message that we have received of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We can do nothing better every time we go to our knees to pray than just to say that. And when we feel like rushing into our own desires and complaints just to pause and like the author of the epistle in the Hebrews approach approach him with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. God, we thank you that you are light. You bring to bear, you bring to our consciousness, you bring to our eyes some of our sinfulness, some of the darkness of the life that we live. God, you cause it to come to our consciousness that we might confess it to you, and you have promised that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of all our sin, to purify us from all unrighteousness. God, I pray that you would work in us a heart that desires that, that desires the joy, the true joy that comes only in you, that comes only in turning to you, relieving ourselves of the burdens that weigh heavily upon us of our sin against ourselves and against others and against you, God. You have promised to forgive us. I pray that you would give us that assurance of your forgiveness. Work in us, remind us, call to mind these verses that we might turn to you and cry out to you, God, you are light and in you is no darkness at all. Purify me from all unrighteousness. This is our prayer today, God. In your name we pray.